Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Hi there. Welcome to Well Read with Justin Chapman. Thanks for being here. This is a weird time. Many people are vaccinated. In Pasadena, more than 94.4% have one dose and 86.7% are fully vaccinated. But for parents of small children who can't get vaccinated, the pandemic is far from over. In fact, it's even worse now because many people are back to normal and expect you to be too. But you can't because children hospitalization rates are spiking, because children deaths rates are going up, because even though you're vaccinated, there's still a small chance you could pass the virus to your kids. Some kids get a rare condition called MISC, where different body parts can become inflamed, including the heart, lungs, kidneys, brain, skin, eyes, or gastrointestinal organs. Some kids get long COVID, meaning they experience symptoms for months, Don't get me wrong, these scenarios are very rare, but what parent in their right mind wouldn't have that nagging voice in the back of their mind? What if that one in a million is my kid? When we're so close to a vaccine for kids being approved. Pfizer recently announced that its vaccine is safe and effective for kids ages five to 11. Their data now has to be reviewed and approved by the FDA and CDC. But what about kids under five? They're at the least risk, but it's holding back their parents from resuming some semblance of normalcy. The longer this pandemic goes on, the more opportunities the virus has to mutate and form new strains like Delta, possibly ones that can evade the vaccine. So for those who haven't received the vaccine yet, the longer you hold out, the longer this pandemic will last. That's just the reality of the situation. In addition to that, Wealthier countries must commit to donating more doses of the vaccine to other countries around the world that need it. Also, the Biden administration is increasingly finding itself in a deep hole and is going to take a lot to crawl out of it. Here's a quick list of the domestic and international challenges that it currently faces. An intra-democratic party war over whether and when to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill which moderates support, and the $3.5 trillion reconciliation infrastructure bill, which progressives support, with both sides threatening not to pass the other bill, which would sink them both. The government's debt ceiling must be raised by late October, or it defaults on its loans, which would have enormous ripple effects throughout the economy. One study said it would cost 6 million jobs and wipe out $15 trillion in wealth. A government shutdown is also looming unless Democrats can convince Republicans to join them in passing a budget by the end of the month. Haitian and other migrants are swarming the U.S.-Mexican border, overwhelming immigration authorities who are responding in unconscionable and unacceptable ways, such as the agents on horseback who were photographed corralling migrants recently. France is so upset over the recent U.S.-Australia deal to build nuclear submarines, which voided an earlier agreement between the U.S. and France, 
that they took the extraordinary step of withdrawing their ambassadors to the US and Australia and canceled a celebration for the 240th anniversary of helping the US in the Revolutionary War. China has been snubbing high-ranking Biden administration officials. There have been numerous cyber attacks across multiple key industries in the US, many originating from criminal groups in Russia that Putin refuses to clamp down on. The Afghanistan withdrawal chaos and the emerging humanitarian crisis there and the mistaken killing of 10 civilians with the US drone strike, including seven children, not to mention the continuing rise of authoritarianism around the world. The Biden administration is still miles ahead of the Trump administration, which was a bumbling clown car. If Trump had been reelected, it would have been devastating to American democracy and beyond. But Biden is losing control of the narrative. If Democrats don't pass the infrastructure bills, it's all over for them. And if we continue down the road we're going, Republicans will retake both houses of Congress next year. We'll see an endless series of Benghazi-style hearings and investigations, but on steroids because Trumpist Republicans like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene will be out for vengeance for misperceived grievances over the election. Then Trump will run again in 2024, but this time Republicans in states like Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin will have reinstalled its lackeys as election officials. And those principled Republicans who held against Trump's pressure in 2020 to overturn Biden's slim margins will be gone. And if Trump gets back in office in 2025 to 2029, it will be beyond worse than if he had been reelected last year. He will go on a scorched earth campaign and remake American society in his tortured, bloated image. We're gearing up for the fight of our very lives, people. Let's take a look now at snapshots of international, national, and California news. In international news, the UN General Assembly is currently underway and the speeches from various world leaders have highlighted just how fractured and divided the world stage is right now. Biden called for global cooperation and a renewed focus on ending the pandemic and combating climate change. The world needs leadership and diplomacy more than ever. The question is, who will provide that leadership? In national news, a San Antonio doctor wrote an op-ed announcing that he had performed an abortion in Texas in violation of the new draconian anti-abortion law that was recently upheld by the Supreme Court. He has already been sued twice in what will be the first test of the section of the law that allows anyone to sue someone who had an abortion, perform one, or help someone get one. We're living in a real-world Gilead with Roe v. Wade in the crosshairs of Republican states across the country. In California news, as expected, Governor Gavin Newsom handily survived the Republican recall attempt. California has got to get rid of the rule that allows recall elections to happen so easily. What a waste of $276 million that was. Completely predictable outcome, but that didn't stop the baseless allegations of fraud. Right, like how did a state with a Democratic to Republican ratio of more than two to one vote blue? Doesn't pass the smell test. Ironically, all this election did was strengthen Newsom's hand going forward. Let's patch in our guest, author Ann Seba. Ann, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really my pleasure. I thank you. Ann is a journalist and author. She has written 10 nonfiction books, mostly biographies of iconic women with a strong historical context, especially around the World War II era and its aftermath. 
She's a prize-winning biographer, lecturer, former Reuters foreign correspondent, and author of 11 books for adults. She read history at King's College London, and her first job was at the BBC World Services. She is a council member of Britain's Society of Authors, a trustee of the National Archives Trust, and a senior research fellow at the Institute of Historical Research. She is also the author of an excellent new book, Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy, which came out this year. So Anne, can you start by telling us uh, why you decided to uh, write about Ethel and, and what you discovered about her story? Okay, well, um, it's 70 years since the trial and ultimate electrocution of, of Ethel and her husband, Julius Rosenberg. And while there's absolutely no magic about the figure 70, although publishers like to have a peg, as I, I'd been aware of the story since I lived in New York 40 years previously, and I read the E.L. Doctorow book of Daniel. So it was a seed inside me. I needed to do a lot of growing up. And my previous book was about women in wartime Paris. And there were a lot of spies in that book, women spies who went undercover. So my publisher said to me, well, surely there's another book about a woman spy. And then I remembered that I had known the story of Ethel, and I don't actually believe she was a spy, but of course Julius was, and it's a story of espionage, and, and that's what they were charged with, conspiracy to commit espionage. But back to the 70 years, there are two reasons why that worked magic for me. One is, if I was going to find people alive who remembered Ethel, I needed to move fast, and I did. I found a woman who'd shared a prison cell with Ethel, I found her... Um, psychotherapist. And I also had conversations with her two sons who are now in their 70s. So 70 was important from that point of view. And I figured it was long enough that the dust would have settled and people would calmly be able to look back on this period of a very divided America. How wrong I was. You know, uh, we are divided still in England and, and, and the world is, is divided. So it, it really is still a, a hot topic, a provocative topic. And I guess I hadn't quite expected that. I thought people would be able to look back on this brief period of McCarthyism and the Cold War, and this would be the time to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, at the heart of the story, of course, is betrayal. It cuts in many different ways. Uh, give us the, the basic outline of the story for, for those who aren't as, as familiar with it. Okay, well, all those people who don't know anything about it will probably have heard of the Rosenbergs, those spies. Right. And that was really my starting point. I wanted to extrapolate Ethel from Julius. I didn't know what I would find. You have to start with, with an open mind. But they were arrested in 1950, and the story unraveled when Klaus Fuchs, the physicist who had been working on the Manhattan Project in Los Alamos, was arrested and confessed. And he really had passed important information to the Soviets during the war. And he was treated in a very British way, calmly. He was given the maximum sentence of 14 years, and they didn't make much publicity, but he named names. He named his courier, Harry Gold. Harry Gold, um, who was already in prison, named Ethel's younger brother, David Greenglass, who was a lowly machinist at Los Alamos. 
David, and this is the interesting thing, named his brother-in-law Julius, but not Ethel. Hmm. Now, the Americans, the FBI, already had this secret information, so they worked out that Julius was a spying recruiter because they'd seen his name mentioned in these cables that they'd deciphered. And so they thought, well, we'll arrest Julius and he's bound to spill the beans and we'll capture lots of people. But the buck stopped there. Julius did not name names. So there, three weeks later, they arrested Ethel, his wife, as well, even though all along they said the evidence against her is very weak, it's scanty, uh, shaky at best. But um, they arrested her as a lever, that was their word, but really they were hostage-taking. And they charged both Ethel and Julius with conspiracy to commit espionage, and they could not believe that a young mother in her early 30s with two small children would not cave in and name names. Even though she wasn't involved, they thought that she would fight for her life by blaming other people, and how wrong they were, as the Deputy Attorney General um, eventually said, she called our bluff. They were not going to dump their friends into the misery they had, which was three years in prison, and in Ethel's case, two years in solitary. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, she never cracked, and that's what um, the authorities had not been prepared for. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Rosenbergs' early life together. How involved were they in, in political activities? So um, Ethel was three years older than Julius. She was the clever one. I mean, Julius was clever, but, but Ethel was really bright. She was moved up a year at school, born in 1915. So um, her formative years were in the Depression, the depths of the Depression. And so even though women could go to college at that point, it was not an option for her because she was born into a Jewish immigrant family, impoverished. They lived in a tenement on the Lower East Side. Her father was a machine repairer. Her mother helped make ends meet by collecting rent. They they didn't speak um, anything other than Yiddish. So here's Ethel, the all-American girl who really had her eyes opened by this extraordinary school she went to, Seward Park High, where she learned singing, she learned acting, she learned all sorts of things about the possibilities of living the American dream. But she had to do a secretarial course and pass most of her wages on to her mother. She didn't go to college. And she probably became a communist around 1936. That's when so many people on the Lower East Side did. And it was twofold, really. It was partly to improve the lot of other people. She saw great hardship and poverty, so it was idealistic. But it was also geopolitical, because in 1936, Hitler was flexing his muscles, walking into the Rhineland, tearing up the Treaty of Versailles. Um, the Spanish Civil War started. They had many friends who went off to fight in Spain, which seemed to be the real chance to stop Hitler in his tracks, not only Hitler and Nazism, but Mussolini and fascism. Mm -hmm. So that was the other reason for joining the Communist Party at this point, which, um, you know, was, was not unusual. And it was while she was singing at a workers' fundraising gala, which was one of the ways she kept her, her voice going. Um, she met Julius Rosenberg, who was also a member of the Communist Party. He was probably 
um, more involved. And they married in 1939. And that was a really awkward time to be a member of the Communist Party, because just to give you a brief history lesson, in 1939, the beginning of World War II, America was not involved. And Hitler formed something called the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, so, um, you know, to be a communist suddenly meant you couldn't attack Nazism. Mm -hmm. But the Rosenbergs stuck with it. And in 1941, when America joined in the war after Pearl Harbor and Hitler marched into Russia, suddenly Russia was um, an American ally again. So at that point, the Americans had to persuade, the, the authorities had to persuade ordinary civilians look, actually, it's quite okay to support the Soviets and the communists. And there were a number of films and rallies. And it was probably at one of those rallies that Julius Rosenberg made himself known to Soviet authorities. He had studied engineering at City College. He had a lot of friends working in government departments. He thought he could be useful. He was naive, but his view was that if Russia was an American ally, they should have access to all the information and materials that we have. So that's probably how he got involved in his spying activities. Right. And um, explain the, the, the heart of the case of why they got arrested. So basically, Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was working at Los Alamos, where the U.S. was developing an atomic bomb. And he passed information about the bomb to Julius, who then passed it to his Soviet handlers, right? That, that, that much is pretty much established, but what's not established is whether Ethel knew about or participated in that passing of information. I'm, I'm sure um, that Ethel knew about it and approved it, or she knew some of the details. The extent of the details is not known, but it's not a crime to have thoughts. It's not a crime even to know and approve. What is a crime is if you commit an overt act. Mm -hmm. So, as I say, they were charged with conspiracy to commit espionage, hoping this would put pressure on them. I mean, conspiracy is almost impossible to disprove. Of course, they had conversations. But the, the authorities were aware it was going to be hard to prove the case against Ethel. So they did a plea bargain, effectively, with David, her younger brother, who had been a spy. He was the one who was passing information he and his wife, Ruth, they, they were quite clearly committed Marxists and communists passing information. And David, in order to um, save his own wife, who was never indicted and, and never charged, um, agreed to a story that she'd made up saying, I saw my sister do some typing, passing on some information to the Soviets. He admitted when he came out that this was his wife's story that he'd gone along with. Not only that, once his grand jury um, records were released, which was one of the reasons I wanted to do this book now, because he lived to 92, he only died in 2015. And although he was not remorseful at all for sending his sister to her death, he admitted that he had concocted the story because he said, um, what am I going to do, contradict my wife? You know, I sleep with my wife, she's the mother of my children. Ethel was stupid not to um, admit. Well, what could she admit if she hadn't been actively involved in any spying activities? Mm -hmm. And more to the point, she couldn't land her husband in it because she believed 
how can I ever live with myself? My sons will never uh, have any respect for me if I'm the one who sent Julius to his death. So her fate was really inextricably tied to Julius's mm -hmm. all along. I don't believe she had any choice, but I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about what she could have done because she adored her sons. And what I've really tried to do in this book is not relitigate the trial, which was full of multiple miscarriages of justice. I've just given you one, the perjury of her brother. Um, but there were others. They were accused of treason orally, although the formal charge was not treason mm -hmm. for all sorts of technical reasons. First of all, Russia was an ally at the time these alleged acts took place. But I believe that Ethel convinced herself in the end she had no material possessions to leave her two sons. So mm -hmm. the best she could do was leave them a legacy. And she didn't want to leave them a legacy of betrayal in the way that she had been betrayed by her own family. Her mother never showed her any love. Um, her brother certainly had betrayed her. She'd been betrayed by the legal system, betrayed by the press who were writing about her as a spy without any evidence or proof. And she thought loyalty is the one thing I can show these two boys. So she went to her death really with incredible dignity. I mean, for a, a woman who left school at 15, who had had really taught herself everything she knew, uh, I found her strength at the end to tie her fate to Julius's and show loyalty and that this was something her sons could cling to and live with. Intensely moving. And, and she was, of course, proved right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Roy Cohn's role in all this. And this case really established him as this ruthless, almost lawless political operative. He goes from securing the deaths of, of the Rosenbergs to being Senator Joseph McCarthy's right-hand man uh, in the, the hearings in the 50s. Uh, to a career as a essentially unethical lawyer leading to his disbarment and, of course, counseling a, a young Donald Trump. So we really see his influence throughout American history from, from yeah. the 40s all the way through to today. Um, so what role did, did uh, Cohn have in the Rosenberg case, uh, especially as with regards to David Greenglass's testimony? How did he influence the outcome? Well... The role of Trump is absolutely fascinating. You're you're right. Um, Trump Trump's relationship to Roy Cohen and just before Trump left office, he was heard to say, "Where is my Roy Cohn?" You know, the man who taught me that that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Um, so, what is Roy Cohn's role? He was only twenty three one of the many thrusting, ambitious young lawyers who worked for Irving Saipol in, in the prosecution. And he was absolutely determined to make his name in what Hoover called the trial of the century. I mean, Hoover is interesting because, of course, ultimately, Hoover did not want to see the death penalty for Ethel. Having been the one who was so keen to rein this couple in, he then recognized, in, in the words of today, that the optics were disastrous for America without actual evidence for a nation to orphan two sons when they knew that the evidence against Ethel was weak. 
Hoover at least had the um, insight to recognize how awful that was. But Roy Cohn was ambitious and he was absolutely determined that this case could make his name if he could prove that there were good Jews, establishment Jews like him and the judge, Irving Kaufman, the chief prosecuting officer, Irving Saypol, and that they were quite unlike uh, these red, commie, impoverished, um, Bolshevik, Lower East Side Jews like the Rosenbergs, and they wanted to show that they were not patriotic, but that he and his ilk really were. So that was one of the driving forces. And I'm often asked, is there anti-Semitism in this case? Well, of course there's anti-Semitism, but it's really hard to pin down. It's just one of the toxic elements, and you see it in the courtroom where almost everybody is Jewish from the judge, the defense, the defendants, the prosecutors, but nobody on the jury is Jewish. Um, there's also only one woman, and she was not supportive of Ethel. And in fact, 70% of Americans were in favor of the death penalty. So the other element that is so much a part of this whole story is the the real genuine fear, the existential fear, I believe it was a moment in time which was whipped up by McCarthy and which ended really in, in 54 when McCarthy overreached himself with the army hearings and after all, Stalin died in 53. I think if they could have just somehow spun out their time in prison for another year, things would have changed. Um, but the judge... Irving Kaufman was absolutely determined not to brook any delay. I think he recognized that he needed to make his name by um, uh, the electrocution of, of these two and how wrong he was because, of course, he did many other things and he wished in later life that he could be remembered for some of these other things. But everybody always remembers Irving Kaufman as, as the judge who electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and mm -hmm. you know, there was a clemency campaign. It would have been so easy to give either of them, but certainly Ethel, a, a, a sentence, long or short, but not actually a capital punishment, so unnecessary to kill her. Right. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, well, uh, it, it's, it's a it's a great book. Every every American and uh, in around the world, people should be more aware of of this story. Um, for, for Pasadena folks watching, the book is available at uh, Vroman's, and for others, you can find it locally at bookshop.org, uh, and Anne's website is annseba.com. Uh, go read the book. It's, it's uh, an amazing read. Uh, so, Anne, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me and, and tell us about your work. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your interest in this really, really important story. I could say so much more about it, but as you said, it's in the book. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you all for tuning in. If you need recommendations for Goodreads, check out Checkmate in Berlin, the Cold War showdown that shaped the modern world by Giles Milton. This fascinating new book examines the immediate aftermath of World War II in Berlin from the period when the Soviet soldiers raped and looted their way through the city before the other allies arrived, to the four-power governance structure that split the city in two, 
to the growing distrust between the Soviets and the West that developed into the Cold War, to the Soviet blockade of Berlin and the American subsequent airlift to save two million plus West Berliners, to the building of the Berlin Wall. Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department by Eli Honig. Honig, a former federal prosecutor, lays out Bill Barr's utter corruption as Trump's attorney general, from his first acts in undermining the Mueller report to the quashing of the Ukraine whistleblower's complaint, which led to Trump's first impeachment, to interfering in the Justice Department's cases against Trump friends, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, to amplifying baseless accusations of mail-in ballot fraud ahead of the 2020 election, and much more. This is a must read for all Americans, so this kind of naked political opportunism doesn't happen again. I alone can fix it. Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year by Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker. These two Washington Post reporters painstakingly recount President Trump's final year in office. It is traumatic to relive the COVID-19 pandemic and, for example, Trump's suggestion of injecting bleach, as well as the attempted coup following the 2020 election. But it is also so important for Americans to understand just how dangerous the situation was and what was actually going on behind the scenes in the West Wing. Lenig just came out with another book that I recommended last time, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. And she and Rucker came out with their first book together, A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America, just last year. They're just maddeningly prolific. Blackbirds by Andre Coleman. Blackbirds is a book by my friend and Pasadena Now managing editor Andre Coleman, as well as a new audiobook series that follows a family struggling with race, justice, loss, and the pain of growing up during Jim Crow in the Deep South. It is an amazing series that is well worth your time. Listen to it at blackbirdsaudio.com. Okay, before we go, let's check in with our senior influencer correspondent, Brad the Influencer. Hey everybody, it's Brad. Um, excuse my hair, I've been like walking out here for so long and my hair's just out of order, so I'm so sorry about that. Um, anyway, it's Wednesday, which means it's Walking Wednesday, and I know I haven't done one in a long time, but um, walking, I'm wearing my shoes, uh, and shoes have been in the news lately because of a little guy named Lil Nas X and his like Satan shoes or whatever. And I'm a little confused because of hair. Let's take a look. You see these? Those are my shoes, um, and they're, they're not new, but um, I did do something special with them a long time ago, which was I had them infused with the spirit of a dead witch, and like no one's talking about that, and I, like, why is this whole thing with Lil Nas X big news? Like, shouldn't we be talking about me? I mean, I did this a long time ago, so, you know, share with your friends. Um, hope this influenced you guys. Love you. Thank you for that report, Bradford. That's it for this episode. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read once a month. You can find this show on YouTube and the Pasadena Media TV channels and streaming apps. I'm Justin Chapman, signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com and sign up to receive my monthly email newsletter to get updates on what I'm working on at justinchapman.substack.com slash subscribe. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time.